We are continuing our journey through John's Gospel and from this point on we'll be looking particularly at uh, the signs that Jesus does uh, and as are recorded in John's Gospel uh, that point us to who he is so that we might put our faith in him. Now last week we heard John the Baptist's confession. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now to this we might say, okay John, but how can we know your claim is true? On what basis? More than just your testimony, can we believe that Jesus is who you claim he is? Do you remember the purpose of John's Gospel? It's there in 15 verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now what we'll see as we journey through John's Gospel is a distinction, a widening gap between those who don't believe, don't receive Jesus and those who do receive and believe in him. Now the priests and the Levites and the Pharisees, they made a, a preemptive strike when they confronted John the Baptist and they challenged his authority to baptise, he pointed them to the one who stands among you whom you do not know. And as the gospel unfolds, we'll see these Jewish leaders confirming that they do not know Jesus by rejecting him and eventually plotting to kill him. But before that happens, the first of Jesus' actions shows us the beginning of those who do believe this little collection of Jesus' first disciples. As we know, a sign is designed to point to something other than itself. It's not the reality, it simply points us to the reality. We're to take note of the sign and then move on to that to which it points. So the question for us to ask is, well, what does the sign of water being turned to wine point us to? Well, the most simple answer is found in verse 11. Through this, Jesus manifested his glory. But that begs another question. What, what is his glory? What does that mean? The Hebrew word for glory means weight or heaviness. A person's glory is the sum total of who they are. The, the, the totality of their nature, their character. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, the Lord made all of his goodness pass before him. He gave him his name. He gave a list of his attributes, grace, mercy, slowness to anger, abounding steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiveness for iniquity and transgression and justice. So to see God's glory is to see him in such a way that you know him and you can trust him. So the sign of water turned to wine manifests Jesus' glory and we see a description of his glory in the interchange between Jesus and these first disciples. Did you notice all of the titles 
that were mentioned in this short passage. It's one of the most concentrated, comprehensive collections of Jesus' titles in the New Testament. It echoes those Old Testament passages that add one after the other of God's attributes. But it's framed not just as a list, it's framed as a series of conversations in which the disciples, one after another, make a confession of who they've come to see that Jesus is, even if they don't fully understand yet what they're confessing. Let's look at them briefly. The first one mentioned is the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. That's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The Lamb stricken for the transgression of his people. The priest who offers himself as a propitiation for sin. Then there's rabbi or teacher. Another end time expectation of the Jews, not just about the Messiah and the prophets and Elijah and the Lamb of God, it comes from Isaiah 54, it was that everyone in Israel would know the Lord as their teacher, rabbi. Then there's Messiah, which means Christ, the anointed Davidic king who will establish God's kingdom on earth. Then him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets spoke. Now the mention of Moses here specifically probably indicates that uh, the disciples saying that is referring to the prophet like Moses, that Moses foretold. Then there's Jesus of Nazareth. We might easily skip over this one because we think it's just describing who he is and what town he comes from, but it's a title used of Jesus in the New Testament. It emphasises his true humanity, that he's living among us as one of us, born and raised uh, in a town, a local town. Then, son of God. Now, kings were figuratively called sons of God, but for Jesus, this is literal. He is God the Son, the second person of the triune God. Then, King of Israel. It's similar to Messiah, but it's also a title that's used of the Lord himself in the Old Testament, the Lord, the true King of Israel. And then rounds up with Jesus' own confession of himself, Son of Man. It's the most common title that Jesus uses of himself. It's taken from Daniel 7, the one who comes before the Ancient of Days and receives dominion over all the kingdoms of the world. There's a summary of Jesus' glory. It's almost like re-experiencing Moses. His disciples saw all of the goodness of God pass before them as they encountered Jesus. If we were to unpack in detail each of these titles, we would see the fullness of all that Jesus is. This glory of Jesus is unpacked not just in a static list though, but in in a narrative as people encounter him, just like they did in the Old Testament. So, to understand what's happening here, we need to be familiar with 
the Old Testament stories and here particularly the stories of Jacob and of Moses. Let's start with Jacob. Jacob was a man who for at least the first part of his life was characterised by deceit. He and his twin wrestled in the womb. When he was born he was grasping the heel of his brother as if to pull Esau back in and to take his place as the firstborn. And so he was called Jacob, which means literally heel holder, someone who gets something by cheating. When they were older, Jacob tricked Esau into selling his firstborn rights for some lentil stew. Later, he and his mother together deceived his aged blind father Isaac by him pretending to be Esau and getting the blessing that should have gone to the firstborn. So Jacob had to flee from Esau who wanted to kill him and so his mother Rebekah spun another lie to get, Jacob, uh, to get Isaac to send Jacob off to find a wife. He was really just fleeing his brother. Early on in his journey while he was sleeping with a stone as his pillow, the Lord gave Jacob a dream. Jacob saw heaven open, a ladder reaching down to earth and the angels ascending and descending on it. And the Lord himself came down to Jacob and in an act of astounding grace, he gave to Jacob the same promise that he had made to Isaac his father and Abraham, his grandfather, the promise of the land, of offspring, of offspring like the dust of the earth and blessing, blessing to all the families of the earth. The Lord was making it clear to this lying, cheating Jacob that even though he had tried to control his own destiny by seizing the firstborn status from Esau, God had already chosen him before he was born to be the one through whom the promise would be passed on. But the cheating continued. Jacob met Laban and he wanted to marry Laban's daughter Rachel. After requiring him to work for seven years, Laban tricked him into marrying Rachel's sister Leah. And then he only gave Rachel in return for another seven years' work. Then Jacob's two wives, they fought against one another for preeminence in bearing Jacob some sons that echoed the wrestling of the two brothers in their mother's womb. Then Jacob used deception, he even used witchcraft to become prosperous at the expense of his father-in-law and then he tricked Laban by leaving without any notice. Eventually, Jacob heard that Esau had found out where he was and was coming to meet him and he feared for his life again. The night before meeting Esau, Jacob wrestled with a mysterious man whom he realised wasn't merely a man but an embodied manifestation of the Lord himself. 
Jacob refused to let him go, demanding he bless him, that the Lord bless him. To which the Lord replied, what is your name? Jacob then had to speak out loud his name, Jacob, the deceiver, the cheater, the supplanter. Jacob, the man who thought he could seize hold of his own destiny but was now brought to nothing, having come face to face with the living God. Well, the Lord's answer to this confession of his identity was, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and you have prevailed. The changed name meant that the old Jacob was dead and gone. Instead, there was a new man called Israel whose destiny was shaped by the promises of God. From this point on in the story, we, we don't see any more deceit in Jacob's story. He becomes Israel in whom there is no deceit. Now, we had to be reminded of this story because the story of Jacob who becomes Israel is what Jesus is invoking in his interactions with these first disciples. So let's have a look at this interaction. First, two of John the Baptist's disciples. One is Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. The other one's unnamed. Tradition holds that it's actually John, the Gospel writer, which makes sense because it means he's there from the very beginning and he's an eyewitness to everything that happens from now on. See Jesus' seemingly non-committal response? What are you seeking? And his answer to their question, Rabbi, where are you staying, is simply, come and you'll see. Now they call him Rabbi, but at this point it's probably just a respectful address. There were plenty of rabbis around who had their followings of disciples. A young Jewish man would be on the lookout for a rabbi that they could follow. And it was convention, it was normal practice that disciples chose the rabbi that they would follow. Well, this was a convention that Jesus broke. Jesus handpicked his disciples. He called them to follow him. As he told them later, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. These men are to become true disciples of Jesus. They need to be chosen by Jesus, not to be choosers. They need to see, like Jacob did, that they're not in charge of their destiny. Jesus is. Now, Jesus had a strategy for inviting them to where he was staying because Andrew then went and got his brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. And see what Jesus does when Simon comes? He changes his name. It seems that in an encounter with Jesus, this mysterious man who just appears on the scene is akin to the encounter that Jacob had with the Lord where his name, his character, his identity, his destiny was changed. So like with Jacob, the old man Simon must die and be remade into this new man Peter, 
if he is going to be Jesus' disciple. Then comes Philip the next day, who does nothing to find Jesus. Jesus finds him and calls him to follow. And this too is strategic because Philip goes and gets his friend Nathaniel to bring to Jesus. And it's with Nathaniel then that Jesus has this longest conversation. And again, he evokes the story of Jacob. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Every Jew would have wanted to emulate their father Jacob by being a person like he was after his name was changed to be a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, Nathaniel, we heard, was told by Philip that Jesus is the one promised by the prophets, but he was sceptical. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So, it's likely that he's now looking for a sign that Jesus is who Philip claims he is. When Jesus makes this statement about him, he thinks that it may be that sign. He questions Jesus, how do you know me? Surely a sign that Jesus is a prophet would be that he can see into the heart of the person he's only just met. Jesus' answer is stunningly unremarkable. I saw you under the fig tree. Now much has been made of that statement. Some say maybe Nathaniel earlier was having his quiet time under a fig tree, which is a picture of an Israelite living at peace in their own home and maybe his, the devotion of his heart was seen by the all-knowing, all-seeing Jesus. I don't think that's what Jesus means at all. I don't think he's claiming any supernatural prior knowledge of Nathaniel. I think he means it literally. He'd already observed Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree and when Philip brought him, he recognised him. Because Jesus wants them to be thinking about the Jacob story and how he fulfills it, not about whether he has special power to see into people's hearts. But Nathaniel's keen to go with the sign interpretation and he takes this as a supernatural indication that Jesus must be the Son of God and the King of Israel. Now Jesus' answer debunks this. Not, not his statements about his identity, but the notion that him seeing Nathaniel under the fig tree is the sign that he must be the Son of God and the King of Israel. So he brings them back and the you there is in plural. So now he's addressing all of the disciples that are listening in. He brings them back to the story of Jacob. He describes Jacob's dream with one difference. He inserts himself in the place of Jacob. What he's doing by this is he's saying Jacob's dream was really about himself. As Jacob lay there and saw heaven open and the Lord come down to reiterate the Abrahamic promises, He was only foreshadowing what would come in the reality of Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 11 tells us that none of the Old Testament people of faith, including Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, received in full what had been promised. It was always partial, always temporary, and so it was that they would always keep looking forward, looking beyond the present realities. As it says, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. They didn't receive the fullness of the promise and it it caused them to keep waiting for that fullness to arrive. Well, the fullness of the promise has come in Jesus. All of God's promises are yes and amen in him. And so Hebrews 11 concludes... And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. That word perfect here means complete. They weren't complete because they only received in their lifetimes part of what was promised. But we've received something better because in Jesus all of the promises are complete. What Jacob knew in part, we've received in full in Jesus. Jesus called Nathanael a true Israelite without deceit, but in this statement he's saying, I'm the true Israel. I am the one who both receives the fullness of the promises and I fulfil them so that you may receive them. Do you know what Jacob said when he awoke from his dream? Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. In other words, this is where God himself comes down from heaven and makes his dwelling place on earth. Does it sound familiar? It should. John 1.14 The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Nathaniel shouldn't believe in Jesus because he thinks he's done a magical trick that, to be honest, any conman, any wannabe Messiah could pull off by seeming to have knowledge about someone. No, Nathaniel will only truly believe when he sees Jesus' glory revealed to him in a way that shows him to be truly all that those titles speak of. Well, finally, we come to the actual sign. You may have wondered if we're even going to make it there. But remember, while the sign's important, it's not as important as that to which it points. And this sign of water turned to wine does that. It points to the truths spoken about Jesus in the preceding section. The wedding happened on the third day. Now I said last week that I would address the question of why John is counting days. This is the third day, three days after the conversation with Nathaniel and there were four days before that, starting with the day that the Jewish leaders came to John the Baptist. So in total... We've actually come to day seven and after this John stops counting. 
Seven days should make us think of creation, the creation week. We saw how John's Gospel begins with the same words as Genesis 1, in the beginning. So John's hinting to us by counting the days that the arrival of the Word into the world is a new creation, one that begins with the light of the Word and ends with the Sabbath rest. So it's fitting that on the seventh day of John's Gospel account, there's a wedding, because that's the goal of the new creation, the supper at the marriage of the Lamb and his bride, the church. So the wine runs out. Potential shame for the bridegroom whose responsibility it was to provide enough wine for this multi-day feast. Jesus' mother, knowing who Jesus is, expects him to do something about it. And again, his answer sounds evasive, non-committal. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, in our culture, it sounds a bit disrespectful to address your mother as woman, but in their culture, it was a title of respect. Jesus isn't reluctant to act here, though, because he does do something. His point is, his hour has not yet come the hour for him to be openly, publicly glorified to everyone. That hour will come later. There will be a time when he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified as he goes to the cross. So Jesus acts, but only in such a way that the disciples only are the ones who know the full picture of what he does. We're told that the servants knew, but they don't have the benefit of those conversations that we've seen in chapter 1. And Jesus seems happy to let the bridegroom take the credit for saving the best wine till last. So no one at the wedding actually knew it was Jesus who had done it. This was solely for the purpose of producing faith in his disciples. So there were these six stone jars and John makes the point of saying that they were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now the law stipulated purification with water in two cases. One was the priests and Levites who had to wash before they went on duty in the temple and the other was anyone who had been declared unclean And part of the rite of being restored was to wash in running water, symbolic of their uncleanness being washed away. So the question is, what were these jars doing here at a wedding? Well, it was because of the traditions of the elders enforced by the Pharisees. They said that to avoid being unintentionally unclean, you must always wash your hands before you eat. Now that was a tradition they had added to scripture but they treated it as if it was scripture. So the host of this wedding would have been obligated to provide water for people to wash before they came into the feast. The reason they're not full 
is because the water had been scooped out to pour over people's hands as they entered. These jars stand there as a symbol of the old covenant, of the law and of the legalistic burden that the Pharisees had placed on people's backs. They represented the law that made a distinction between clean and unclean, who was out and who was in, all based on external rituals, all based on conformity to the law's demands. If you'd come to the wedding that day and refused to have your hands washed, you wouldn't have been allowed in. You would have been out, not part of the festivities. The law excludes us from God's kingdom because it reveals our sin, our uncleanness, our unworthiness. That's why no one is able to be made righteous and to enter the kingdom of God by works of the law. The Pharisees went and exacerbated that by adding all of these extra traditions. So what Jesus does with the water represents what he has come to do. Remember he said, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfil them. If he'd come to abolish the law, the sign would have been something like making the jars vanish or ordering the servants to smash them. Instead, he transforms them. He gets them filled up and then he makes them into something new. He takes the water, representing the old covenant, and turns it into the wine of the new covenant. And not just any wine, but the best wine. This sign points to him as the one who alone is qualified to take on all of those titles because in him all of the promises from Moses onwards have reached their pinnacle. So this is how Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples. Not that he had power to change the water molecules into wine molecules, but that his arrival marks the end of the old age and the start of the new. He is the one in whom all of the promises given to Jacob are going to be completed. Up to this point, the disciples had made all their statements about who they thought Jesus might be, but now, having seen this sign, they believe. Now, this sign relates not just to the old covenant giving way to the new, the old Israel making way for the new Israel. It also tells us something about what Jesus does on a personal level. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-17 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, regarding someone according to the flesh means distinguishing between those who, according to the flesh, are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the true Israelites, the ones included in the covenant, and everyone else, 
the Gentiles who were on the outside. If you weren't a Jew according to the flesh, you were out. Paul used to regard Christ according to the flesh, meaning he thought that the promises were only for Israel, that Christ would come only to save the Jews. Now he sees it differently, as it was always meant to be, that Christ came for the world. So now it's not if any Jew, but if anyone is in Christ. For them, the old is gone, the new has come. The old jars made for ritual washing under the law that kept people excluded have been transformed into jars that store the best wine of God's kingdom, the kingdom of grace. It's not just that there's a new covenant and a new Israel, but in Christ, people are made new. When you become a Christian, you don't decide to follow Jesus You don't take on a new belief system or a new way of behaving. You are born again, made new. The old you dies and you're given the resurrection life of Jesus. Your name is changed. You become a new creation. So let's be praying that in this new year ahead we will be seeing a fresh manifestation of the glory of Jesus among us so that we may believe in him, trust him for whatever he has in store for us, that we'll be enabled to confess to one another and confess before the world that he is the Son of God and be willing, willing to follow him wherever he leads. Let's pray.